You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. My guest today is literary agent Emma Dries. Emma is a writer and editor and an agent at Triangle House Literary, where she represents literary fiction, narrative nonfiction, and academic crossover, with a special interest in climate writing. She began her career in editorial, working with best-selling and award-winning authors at Alfred A. Knopf, Doubleday, Echo, and Flatiron Books. She has a BA in history from the University of Chicago and an MFA in fiction from Johns Hopkins, where she also taught undergraduate fiction and poetry. Her writing has been published in LitHub, Book Forum, Outside, and Dwell, and she was the finalist for the Boston Review 2021 Aura Estrada Short Story Contest. On the show, we talked about unlikable characters in fiction, query letters, MFAs, when you know a manuscript is ready to send out, ageism in publishing, and perhaps the most important thing to consider before signing with an agent, and much more. And now for my talk with Emma Dries. Emma, I'm so glad you could uh, be on with me to talk about agenting and publishing and everything else um, uh, along those lines. But before we get into specifics about agenting, will you talk a bit about how you found your way to becoming an agent? Sure, yeah. Um, It is a, uh, well, first of all, also thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. Um, Yeah, I actually, I came into publishing um, on the in-house editorial side. Um, I was... uh, in-house, I started at Knopf and Doubleday, um, and then I moved over to Echo, um, and I was editing for several years, um, you know, kind of right out of college. Um, those imprints were really wonderful to work at, um, and both kind of unique, interestingly prestige um, within a larger uh corporate environment. Um, And so I think they were both really, really specific and unique and um, pretty, pretty singular experiences. I also worked for really great editors, which I think makes a big difference. Um, When you're assisting, you're, you're sometimes kind of an island with the people you're working for. And I think it's really important that that relationship works well. Um, And I, I, yeah, I did that for several years and I left to actually go to grad school to get my MFA. Um, I went down to Hopkins um, and spent a couple years uh, away from the industry working on my own writing. I came back into it uh, via just a fair amount of freelance editing Um, and, you know, this past year I was in a really good position where I wasn't looking for a specific job. I was happy with freelancing, but I really missed, um, working on things I really cared about and was invested in. And, um, I had had people over the years tell me that I would be a good fit for agenting. Um, and I, I don't know, kind of ignored them or didn't take it too seriously. Um, and 
this job came up at Triangle House and I had known Monica a little bit um, from when I was still in editorial. She'd sent me a couple of things and I really liked the ethos and just the vibe of what she was doing there with a the smaller agency and who she was bringing on. And, you know, I talked to her and it just, it just seemed like a really good fit. Um, and over the course of our, um, you know, several months of conversations, uh, I kind of began to really want it and want it more. Um, and I started to get pretty antsy, um, which I think was good because I think it clarified for me that it was, um, the thing that I wanted to do. And, um, it's been great being back in, kind of on the other side, I think I have the advantage of having worked in house before. And so I know how things run. I know the machinations of all of that. Um, and that can be, you know, a blessing and a curse. Uh, but I think it's so far been really helpful for me. Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I think the best agents um, are those who've worked as editors, because they're, they've been on both sides of the desk. Although it does, seem, it does seem to me that being an agent would be more stressful because, you know, you're also a salesperson. And yes, I mean, I don't know. How do you deal with it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a different thing to get used to. I mean, part of it is honestly, frankly, the structure of what you want your life to look like. I realized one of the reasons that I kind of stepped away was because I knew I really wanted flexibility and independence over my own job um, and my time and where I lived and all of that. And, you know, even post COVID, it's, it's still hard to be in house in an editorial if you're doing that. Um, and agenting is much more flexible. Um, and, but then it comes with the stressors of, yeah, having to reorient in a sales mindset. But the thing that I would say is even when you're an editor in house, you're selling, you know, you're selling to when you're, when you get really excited about a project, you, unless you're really the top brass, um, you have to get the approval and sign off of a bunch of other editors and often sales and often, you know, and so you kind of, no matter what, are in the business of edit is of selling. Um, and I, the thing that has been really nice for me with agenting actually is that I still am doing a lot of editing. Um, I that's still very important to me that I'm I have like strong editorial relationships with my clients because that is you know my first instinct is to make something as good as it can possibly be. Um, but yeah, then you add this whole other element and you don't know how it's going to go. And, um, you know, you could have a project that you think has incredible potential and it doesn't go anywhere and you could have something that you're not as sure about and it goes somewhere. And um, there is a level of uncertainty that and a level of gambling because of how much time you put into projects before you make any money. Um, but at the same time, you're not beholden to, at least in my position, I'm not beholden to mergers and layoffs and, you know, whatever, and consolidation and strikes and all of that. And and that has been, yeah, I have to worry about health insurance, but I think everything has, um, everything has its pros and its cons. Mm. Well, talk about a bit of what you're looking for in fiction and nonfiction. Sure. Yeah, I have, um, I am hoping to have a pretty split list. Um, I, you know, I came up working on 
pretty upmarket and literary fiction and then pretty serious nonfiction. Um, and I think there are benefits to both, you know, with nonfiction, even if you don't take on a project, you learn something, um, usually, uh, and there's also nothing as kind of, uh, exciting as a novel that just like you get completely absorbed by. So I, I am definitely pursuing both. Um, I kind of a broad umbrella of something I'm interested in with both fiction and non is kind of any sort of climate writing. Um, whether that's climate change is a strong feature and we have a reported out book about its effects, whether it's, you know, a frame or a passing reference. I think that it is certainly the greatest issue of our time. And uh, I find that when writing doesn't address it, it is almost distracting to me at this point. If you're, at least if you're, you know, writing contemporary fiction or, you know, and so that is, that is something I'm often looking for, but you know, it's not, it's not the only thing I like. Um, I, fiction I really love like a big kind of meaty multi-generational novel um but I think that if you're going to write a long book it has to really be justified um you know you have to really earn every sentence um and I like I like some darkness um I have a dark sense of humor uh and uh nonfiction, I you know I'm really interested in narrative nonfiction, long-form journalism um I went to college with a lot of people who ended up as academics. And so I'm interested in academic crossover. Um, I think when you're able to find an academic who knows how to write well um, and knows how to write to the layperson, it's kind of a diamond in the rough because there's just no one who's, you know, as keyed into a, the specifics of and obsessed with the specifics of one subject and there's nothing like it. Um, but the questions you have to ask yourself with nonfiction are, if it's a journalist, you know, is this an article or is it actually a book? And with a, something from an academic, it's like, will enough people actually care about this? Um, and I'm interested in the space of what, when you can bring that sort of specialized interest to a broader audience. Mm. So how would you say then the percentage of fiction to nonfiction um, um, is, or, or how do you want it to be for your list? I would like it to be about half. Um, I would like it to be pretty split, you know, in terms of querying, um, it is the vast majority of queries will probably be fiction. Um, just because that's what's happened thus far. And, um, it's easier to I think it's, you know, people are just querying their novels all the time. Nonfiction sometimes requires a level of um, proactive research from the agent side of I am seeking out writers I'm reading and, um, you know, whose work I follow and um, who someone turned me on to. And so that is probably less likely to come in um, as a blind query. Although one of the first nonfiction writers I signed up who's writing I am in love with, um, he came into me as a blind query. So, you know, you never know. Um, but yeah, I, I think I would like it to be about split. I, I find that's best for my attention and it satisfies the kind of two parts of my brain. Um, and luckily I don't have to 
pick between the two, which is great. <laughs> well, you just mentioned blind queries, and mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, what how many authors you find in the slush pile, and how important are referrals? And and do you? I mean, I would think you pay more attention to referrals if someone mm-hmm. mentions a name in in the subject line, but but you know, how about that? And what about the slush pile? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's a really important part of the job. I would like to, for as long as I can, be open to queries. I mean, I know that agents kind of go through periods of time where they're open or not open. And because I'm still relatively early on, um, I'm doing my best to stay up to date with responding also, because I think that you know, now people just get besieged and they say, you know, if you don't hear from me in six months, it's a no. I'm going to try to kind of keep up with it as much as possible for as long as I can. Um, But, you know, I got 200 queries in the first week and a half that I was open. And and a lot of that is a lot of that is people who are just like, have been querying their novel for a really long time. And they see that there's a new agent. So they're like, I'm going to send you my, you know, high fantasy YA, even though that's not something you've ever expressed interest in. Um, so, but I think it's really important. I um, have a separate, like I use query manager. Some some agents have them just come in right through their email. And I find that that would be too distracting to me. So I set aside time every week to kind of go through queries. Um, and I, I look at all of them. I mean, I think it's, it's really, you never know. Um, and also I've seen plenty of really wonderful writing um, in in blind queries so it's hard for me to imagine kind of like shutting the door to that entirely you also sometimes get something on a referral that's not good at all so it's like you know people referral is just having a name right um and that doesn't necessarily mean anything but you know if i get something to my email from someone i know well and whose taste i trust of course i'm probably going to look at that first um or it's going to be at the top of the pile but um but I, I'm, I'm not really, at least right now, interested at all in, in shutting off the sort of blind query um, or, you know, slush pile or whatever you call it. I guess I haven't even really thought about it as a slush pile. Um, I always think of that as like a publishing house thing. Um, but I guess it is true if you're agenting as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's it's always interesting. And, and you can also sort of start to see even with things you don't take on, you know, trends and what people are writing about and what people care about. Um, and uh, I, I so far have found it valuable. So in, in speaking of nonfiction, you didn't mention memoir. Do you handle memoir? I do handle memoir. I would say that I have a pretty strong uh either i don't know if the word is high bar or strong caveats for memoir which is i i am interested in memoir when it has a very specific peg to something that is happening in our like that is relevant to our world whether it's you know science or policy or anything like that you know i think sometimes what you see is a memoir that I get so because I do a lot of climate writing you know or I I'm interested in that you know I got a lot of how the forest changed me or whatever and I think that for me I am much more interested in how a personal story can act as sort of a supplement or illuminate 
something structural or bigger picture than I am necessarily interested in using something as like a peg to just talk about someone's personal life. Um, Of course, there are exceptions to that. But that's just generally, I think probably the more like, like nerd side of my brain is just always interested in like, you know, I need a better, like more modern example, because I'm constantly saying being mortal, which is now at this point, like 10 years old, but that kind of blend um, of a really wonderful personal story, but talking about, you know, that book is all about the aging industry, which shouldn't be that interesting, and yet is super compelling, but is also probably more compelling because the Tulkawande's, you know, has this whole story about his father or, you know, uh, the Ulibises, people who are, or even Carrie Howley, that doesn't really count as a memoir, but um, it it should, I want it to have kind of an intellectual peg to it. Um, of course, there will be exceptions, but um, I'm probably, I'm generally not interested in, in a kind of just quieter memoir about um, someone's life, unless there's something um, really, really extraordinary, um, which isn't to say everyone doesn't have extraordinary lives, because we all do. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, so I'm curious to where does what you're looking like, where it comes from, like space on your list, your personal loves, trends, like what, what is the thing that will pull you, that mostly pulls you into a mm-hmm. project or being interested in a project? I think that, I mean, it's, I won't even say voice because that's a compound and that's what everyone yeah. will say, you know, yeah. it's, and that is a very ineffable thing. I think that um, it's sometimes easier for me to talk about what I don't like than what I do uh, like. Because okay. I feel like, well, I just I just think that sometimes it's when it's like, you know it when you see it. Um, but you certainly know it when you don't see it. Um, I, you know, I respect and admire poetry. I'm not a big poetry reader. And I think that that ends up being also sometimes indicative of my literary taste, which is I admire a really beautiful sentence, but I need that beautiful sentence to really be saying something. Um, And so I am not particularly interested in like prose that is like pretty for the sake of being pretty. Um, And so it seems obvious, but it should really be about something. Um, That said, I also care that something is really written well. Um, And I think with, Nonfiction, it's, you know, it's easier to say topics that are compelling to me. Um, You know, I'm interested in institutional corruption and organized labor and climate, obviously, in environmental writing, um, some level of political writing. I would be interested in true crime if if it's done really well. Um, And with, I think, when it comes to fiction, it is about the voice and it is about, I think there being a real story. Um, this is partly, of course, my taste, but I think also just the way the market you see where the market is going is this really drive towards plot. And part of that has to do with the fact that like the romance industry is just so strong and like, you know, so dominating right now that I think in all other genre even with literary fiction um editors and houses are really looking for for plot um Mm -hmm. I also don't think there's anything wrong with that I mean I think that like (laughs) 
sometimes you have a really quiet, you know, I have a couple, I have worked with a couple of writers who are writing really, really kind of beautiful, kind of intimate, intense, insular stories, but there is still sort of a, a pretty strong thread and plot. Um, and so I think that I, if something isn't going to have much of a plot, it really needs to have a reason, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I care about families. I care about, I'm interested in speculative writing when it's, um, feels fresh. Um, I'm, I'm interested in sort of, I would, I would acquire, I would work on a horror novel or something really scary. Um, I'm kind of been thinking about that more lately. Um, but I'm not super interested in like the paranormal. I think that people are kind of the scariest things in the world. And so <laughs> um, books that talk about how depraved and awful people are, are also great. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess that's, I don't know if that's a full answer. I'm interested in a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, speaking of fiction and plot, mm -hmm. I, I was just talking with another author a little while ago about unlikable characters in fiction, mm. because it seems to be such a thing right now that, you know, well, I don't like it because I didn't like any of the characters, right? I don't know. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Can you talk about this yeah. thing with unlikable characters and why, why readers um, maybe don't like them and why writers like them? Yeah, that's a good question. That's and a good psychological like. question. <laughs> so I think, well, I'll, I'll the, the the kind of um, disclaimer answer is that I do think everyone is different. Like, I think that plenty of people don't like to read about shitty people. Um, and that's fine. You know, plenty of people don't like to read sad books. Plenty of people don't like to read happy books. Like, it's just another element of... Um, taste right um but i think when it comes down to this question of unlikable it's really a sense of i think of it more as like can one relate to this character even if they are unlikable and i think some of the most kind of compelling and uncomfortably compelling narrators are narrators that readers see themselves in um and who are you know, unpleasant and bad and, and all of that. Um, I think tone also matters. You know, if you're writing a satire about a bunch of terrible people, like, um, you know, White Lotus or what, it's like people watch bad people on TV all the time. So I think that I, I am certainly, I certainly don't object to it. Um, but I also think it is, it is hard to do well. And I think that's, I think that's what sometimes gets lost in translation, right? Is that so much feedback, we end up with these sort of like rote, I just like specific groups of feedback that we give to everything because it's a good shorthand. Um, and so sometimes one is, I couldn't get invested in the characters. Um, and that honestly, like, doesn't necessarily mean that you have terrible characters. It could mean that you know, one assistant read a couple pages of something and decided that that was the reason. Um, I think that something that writers, something I try to talk to writers about before you go out with a project or when I'm working with people freelance is it's important for you to, you don't have to take every piece of feedback you get. Um, 
I think you should be thinking about trends and feedback. And so if you are, if you're getting feedback that feels great, great. If you're getting a piece of feedback that doesn't feel right, um, you know, see if you get that feedback a couple more times. <laughs> um, and then maybe that's, that's a movement that you could make. Um, I think the question of why writers like unlikable characters and why readers don't, again, I think readers do, but I do think it's more challenging. Um, I think as a writer, I mean, I think writers have a lot of darkness in them. <laughs> um, and sometimes um, dark feelings about themselves. And so if you're putting a little bit of yourself in anyone you're writing about, um, that might come off in terms of a little bit of unlikability. Um, but it always is, I think, in how the voice is handled and if it's handled well. Um, and, you know, if someone's just like a massage, like a racist misogynist for the sake of it and the story isn't saying anything and it's just meant to be like, look at this bad person, then of course it's not going to be interesting in the same way that reading something about an like angelic person who saves puppies and, you know, does volunteer work is probably not going to be that interesting, right? It's like all about how you complicate someone's circumstances. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think of characters like Hannibal Lecter or yeah. Humpert, you know, and how are they relatable? And yet we, you know, are fascinated, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> totally. I'm like, not to say that Humphrey Humphrey is a relatable character. I don't want to say that. But also, you know, some of those, like those books are also incredibly specific, right? If you have this like really claustrophobic, like horrible, like, you know, Lolita is like a exercise in kind of like narrative genius, I would say, and just in terms of and it's a horror story. Like it's not a romantic story. I mean, despite how people have maybe read it over the years, but um, <laughs> that is like, that's an example of, that's kind of a different genre, right? It's like, it's writing about, you know, Humbert Humbert is not the same as someone who tries to write a book about like, you know, Nathaniel P from 10 years ago or whatever, which Adele Waldman's, that was like kind of infamous for him being this kind of, uh, uh, philanderer in in New York and Brooklyn at the time and that book did so well and the question is like well why did that book do so well and it's because well maybe everyone knows a Nathaniel P and this is like a validation of this character that they see over and over again hopefully not that many people know a Hannibal Lecter and, <laughs> and or a Humbert Humbert um, but it's kind of it's the genre is doing something different I think mm-hmm hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay, so let's excuse me. Let's talk about query letters, and mm. because you know these these just um, befuddle writers all the time, yes. especially especially comps, right? Mm -hmm. Comps that are within what the the last two years, and um, yeah, I mean, talk to us about comps. <laughs> I mean, I am probably a little more generous with comps. Like, I think if you're comping something from the last 10 years, it's probably fine for me. I think like, I think comps end up being really, really important if you're writing genre fiction. I think they are, of course, important with literary fiction. But 
you know, people like to pretend that they know how the market is going to go with a book. Um, and it's just like, it's not true. Like no one knows, like who's to say, maybe you can make predictions, but who's to say the function of a comp for a querying writer is to make the agent then have an easier time coming up with comps for the editor who will then have an easier time running a profit and loss statement. Right. And so it's like, you're kind of like kicking all the comps down the road until you get to the point where the editor will hopefully spit out a number and say, here's what we could spend on this book. Um, so I obviously find it pretty disqualifying if someone is only comping books from, you know, the 19th century. And part of that has to do with the fact that that is just like a bat signal on that person does not read um, contemporary fiction. And I think that that is, with some exceptions, one of the most important things to be doing as a writer um, is to be reading your peers and to be reading in the genre you're interested in, to be reading the genre that's out there. And I think that writers sometimes have a hard time with it because they're not reading as widely in that space as they could be. Um, I think that's an ungenerous read of plenty of writers, but I, I have seen that before. I have, you know, read or done an, a freelance edit on something and I've recommended a bunch of books for this person to read that they think that I think is sort of in the vein and they haven't read any of them. Um, and, you know, well, like popular books. And so I think that is, is really important that like half the job of, of querying is also just knowing what's out there. Um, but part of it is also, you know, a game. It's like, it's going to even books you haven't read and, uh, looking in the back and seeing who their agent is, if the book feels like it's in line with the kind of thing that you're writing. Um, it's, I think it's both important creatively in terms of thinking about your own project, but it is unfortunately also just like part of the game. And a game is maybe the wrong word, but I, I do think it helps. It certainly helps with an agent when they're trying to figure out how to pitch something and I cannot tell you, I've probably gotten two dozen queries in the last few months where under my like similar titles ask, someone will write, and it's usually like an old white guy will write, uh, there's nothing like here out this today, or like there's nothing like this out here today. And I'm just like, there definitely has to be. And also <laughs> that doesn't make me like, I think people think, oh, then it's like an absolute like spark of original thought. And that is great, probably not entirely true, um, but you still need some sort of peg. And, you know, it's much more important to me that the the pegs you're telling me about are, are vibes it doesn't have to be like oh this book had an elephant my book has an elephant you know it should be more right. who having read this book would maybe be interested in your own before we bring emma back on a few words about patreon please consider visiting our patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing a few dollars a month helps us to continue bringing the show to you We've produced one or two interviews weekly since 1998. You can also help the show by buying your books at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing, where you will find books by authors who've been on the show as well as other books we like and recommend. And now more with Emma Dries. Well, what about categories? Because that's another one, you know, trying to kind of, you know, pigeonhole your book, especially, I suppose, if it has 
uh, qualities of a thriller or qualities mm. of a literary novel, or it's mm-hmm. upmarket. Like, why can't book club fiction be a category? You know, where you just say, you know, that this is what it is. Is it not? <laughs> I, I thought I, it was. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess the question is like, what do we mean by category? Do we mean like a bisac, the way something is shelved, or just in when someone's querying what when they could someone's call it? querying when someone's querying what what they call the book, what they call the genre? I would probably have no problem with someone calling something a, a book club fiction. I mean, book club fiction I think of as just up market, basically, um, and maybe maybe slightly more commercial, but I think that's kind of like mincing words. Um, I would have no issue with that. I think if someone can talk about their book and talk about who the reader is for their book, and that is uh, literally what book club fiction is telling you. It says this is for a book to be read in a book club. Um, So I have no problem with that. It's possible that you like can't select that on query manager as something to, you know, what your book is, but I'm rarely looking at the actual genre that someone is like clicked on the click down unless they have sent me something that is again like I don't know I'm just picking like you know hard fantasy or high fantasy and pretended that it was literary fiction which is just like that is my pet peeve when someone is like trying to really stretch the bounds of what the genre is but I have no problem with hybrid I think hybrid genre is super interesting you know that's also something that I think several of the agents at Triangle House are interested in and people who like blend genre. I also kind of think that there's, and maybe this is a warped sense, but I think there's maybe more appetite for um, kind of experimenting with genre um, in the market than there used to be. Um, and I also think that uh, I lost my train of thought. I don't remember what I think. Oh. <laughs> Well, when you get when you get a submission through Query Manager, what do you pay the most attention to? I mean, there's the query, and then mm-hmm. I I'm not familiar with Query Manager exactly. I don't know. Is there a synopsis as well, and then a few pages? Yeah, um, basically, it'll be the query, a couple details like comps, the the query letter, and then if it's nonfiction, it'll usually be a proposal or a synopsis. And if it's fiction, I ask for something like 20 pages. Um, I think everyone handles this differently. The way I will do it is I will often kind of do speed read a bunch of queries. And honestly, from the query, think about, is this immediately interesting to me? And if it is, that will sort of get my first attention. Um, And then I will begin reading the sample, um, which isn't to say that I don't read the queries of things that I look at and say, maybe this isn't for me because you never know. Um, but I would say I, I could almost say that I skim the query and then immediately go to the sample if it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I will go back and read the full query more carefully. Um, I basically do everything to get to the writing as quick as I can, because, Again, it's like it's a time, it's a it's all about time. There's so many of them and you want to be able to give your focused attention to the ones that are really, you know, the ones that you're really interested in in spending time with. Um, which I know is hard to hear for writers who are like constantly querying and and wanting agents to give them that time and attention. It's brutal. 
Um, but it's just not possible to give them to every, to every submission. Um, and so I basically try to get to the actual sample pretty quickly. Um, and honestly, it, it is, it does make the beginnings of novels extremely important. <laughs> like it is really, it is really important that a beginning feels not even that, like, you know, I will not take like it might not even end up being the beginning of the novel right but if it's not pulling me in in those first few pages like I'm probably not going to keep reading so you will read the first couple of pages you won't stop after like the first paragraph <laughs> oh I've st- I, I, I certainly stopped after the first paragraph I yeah. mean I won't lie I I have absolutely done that um it's just it's not possible to read the beginnings of everything um but if something has, and because, you know, I get a lot of stuff in that's, you get things in that are just not, yeah. not even not written to your taste, just not written well. And that's unfortunately just not something that is worth spending a lot of time on. Right. Well, what about bios? Because, you know, mm. there are brand new writers who have nothing much to say in a bio, no mm-hmm. writing, no writing credits, their writing might be wonderful and the bios say very little. And then there are, you know, the MFA graduates um, with lots of connection to the literary community. So how mm-hmm. do you react to bios? I don't particularly care about them. Um, I think that, again, if I'm doing that initial query and I see that someone is, if I'm doing that initial skimming of the query and I see that someone is already already been published, do you think of it as sort of like the first filter kind of like okay they have proven that they have you know written something that has been out there which again does not mean it's good (laughs) there's plenty of crap that gets published um but I would not say when I'm deciding whether to take a client on I even really think about that at all I think it's not I don't find it particularly helpful um well that's not to say it helps if they have it but it would not be a reason for me to not take someone on because they, you know, have been just like working a day job for 25 years and then decided to write a book. Like, I don't have a problem with that at all. I think that's some of the most interesting writing out there is people who've gone out and like lived in the real world. Um, The other thing I would say is that in terms of the MFA world, and I, you know, I'm I'm biased because I spent time there. um, But outside of Columbia and NYU and a little bit Iowa. It's pretty amazing how not connected a lot of the MFAs are to the industry. Um, I think, in a, and this is more just to anyone who might be listening who's thinking about getting an MFA, which I, I have found to be, it was very valuable to me, but I also went to a fully funded program. I didn't have to pay for it. Um, and I think that the professional, like the the question of like profession using your degree in a professional way and putting it out there in the world is not present at a lot of programs that are outside of New York. Um, and I was lucky to not have needed that because I came from the industry, but, you know, I was explaining to faculty members how it was working and they're published writers, right? It's not. And I think that it's skewed because of all the connections that um, I think a lot of New York based MFAs have. 
Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many MFA programs now just everywhere, right? Yeah. And I think they're, I've, I think it's really valuable for people who, you know, you can't afford to spend a couple hundred grand on an arts degree. And if you want some time and space and a little money to go away and write, and you can um, get into one and it's like a good time in your life and you're ready to move. um, Why not? But um, the, the sort of financial investment that I see happening in them, um, I think can be a real, a real risk if you um, are, are expecting something to come out of it, I guess. Mm-hmm. What about ageism in publishing? Um, mm. You know, because there are so many debut novels being published now by older writers than there used to be. And totally. I'm curious if agents, if this matters, if age matters to agents and editors, do agents Google a writer who's querying them to find out, you know, their age range before they respond? Or is it all really? About oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, for, I mean, maybe for some people, maybe I should be doing that. But no, <laughs> I, I don't like actually, you know, one of our other one of our other Triangle House agents, Kima, um, Kima Jones, uh who's incredible, something she specifically is looking for are, you know, older debut authors. She's really interested um, in people who are publishing when they're a little bit older um, or when they've had full lives. So I think it's something that that certain people are even more drawn to. Um, I don't know. I'm not, I would not be particularly interested in like placing one of my writers with a publisher who had an issue with how old they are. <laughs> Like, I just don't, I I don't know. I know people who, I have people in my life who have retired and are writing books and are excellent writers and, and, you know, finding the time and space to be working on that writing. And, um, you know, again, I think when you're doing that, you need to be reading in the genre you're writing in. Um, And the writers I know who are doing that now who are retired read a ton of contemporary fiction and they are not writing as though they're writing in the 1960s or whatever. Um, And, you know, like the demographics of readers are like by and large women and I think skews older. And so I think, yeah, you're seeing the, the, um, you know, lessons in chemistry, you're seeing the, I can't think of another, um, but you know, like, uh, Oh, the where the crawdads uh, sing. Right. Oh, Delia right? Owens, or um, you know, I feel like remarkably right creature. She might have been. Well, I don't want to say that she might not. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> it's just it's out there, and i I wouldn't have I wouldn't have a problem with it. I think um, again, what you're writing about matters, and people are drawn to all sorts of different stories, um, and you know, and it's it's about taste, but I. I, I, I have a hard time imagining Googling someone just to figure out how old they are. <laughs> well, so you mentioned Kima Jones at your agency, and I'm curious mm-hmm. if you get something or someone in your agency gets something that's not quite for them. Will you pass it around? Oh, we- definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that's really, we're, is really important to us is that we share, you know, Monica, especially because she has a pretty big list at this point. Um, she's not taking as much on these days. And so she is like quite frequently like funneling queries to us that we might be interested in. Um, and 
you know, same goes for we're sharing between one another. Um, because yeah, I think also, you know, you'd be amazed how much I read and I am like, I have fully, I fully believe that someone could buy this and someone will buy this and this is technically good. And I am just don't care at all. (laughs) Like that's again, just comes down to taste. And sometimes when that happens, you say, Oh, here, like, look, this other agent who is at my agency and whose taste I trust, and I know would be really drawn to this sort of thing, or might be really drawn to this sort of thing. Um, Yeah, there's absolutely no, like, no one is hoarding queries, there's plenty to go around. Mm. Well, how perfect do you need a manuscript to be when it comes in? I mean, for you to take it on? Or, or do you expect yeah. that nothing's going to be perfect and you're going to work with the writer to get it as perfect as possible, but, but it still has to come in in a certain yeah. shape, right? So I certainly expect that I'm going to have to work with it. And I certainly do not expect something to be perfect. If it's So this is sort of where I and my kind of like personal background has begun to kind of affect the way that I work, which is, I still in many ways think like an editor. And so I will see something in, and if it's something I'm really drawn to and interested in, but I can see all the work that needs to be done. um, My instinct might be, I want to take this on. um, But I also have to think about my own time. um, And I am again, doing like, I'm doing several rounds of edits with all of my clients. Um, But if something comes in, and I think, you know, this needs more than several rounds of edits, it's, even though my instinct is, yeah, take it on, make it perfect. That's, that's all unpaid labor until you even you sell a book, and maybe it doesn't even sell. And so I think it's, you have to be careful about, and I'm, I'm certainly still learning this. I don't like this is early on, I have no idea but um, I am trying to keep that back in, in the back of my mind more so than I did when I was exclusively editing. And, um, you know, you are just taking each draft on its own. Um, but I I absolutely believe that things are going to change. You know, I often find that when I'm working with client freelance clients or whatever, and they're talking about querying, a lot of the questions they have when they're leading up to querying are very much they're very nitty gritty. They're very much like, do I need chapter headings? Or, you know, people will often ask me about the endings and if the ending is working. And my whole thing is, if you if you if an agent gets to the end of your book, (laughs) they're not going to stop. They're not going to turn you down because they didn't like the ending. Like it just doesn't, you know, if someone makes it that far, then they care and they're invested in it. Like, I think the bigger picture questions are much more important. Um, and, you know, whether this has a story, you know, not whether there's a typo on page four. Um, right. That said, if I get something in and there's like sloppy tense switches in the first three pages or, you know, typos all over, like I'm probably not going to, that that's to me sh- suggests like a not great attention to detail. Um, something I also... Uh, have started recommending to almost all the writers I work with, which people either cringe at or begrudgingly agree to is um, uh, reading their work out loud um, Mm. to themselves. Because I think that 
you know, everybody is in a different position of being able to hire an editor or having beta readers or have like, everyone has a different financial situation. Everyone has a different like bandwidth. And so I would never go to someone and say, you need to hire an editor before you query this, because that's just not possible for everyone. Um, and there's other things you can do. Um, but I think the most basic thing you can do is print the book out and read it out loud because the number of times, you know, you read something a thousand times, you begin to glaze over it uh, or gloss over it. And also reading something out loud helps you pick up on things that are awkward or things that don't sound quite right. Um, it's a really different experience. Um, and so that's just something that I like to, to throw in and then people usually groan at and probably ignore me, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, but it's such a great idea. I mean, so much, if you can read slowly your own stuff and so much jumps out at you that, I mean, even grammatical stuff, words that are shouldn't be there or words that Definitely. are missing or, I mean, so much comes out that, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. and it's, it's also... Yeah. It, it, I mean, I remember even when I was in house and you would pass around like cover layouts and 10 people would look at the cover three times and a typo would still end up on the finished yeah. book. And it's just like, <laughs> you know, people just, it's like, all right, we don't, who knows what's going on. Right. Right. Well, do you, you mentioned editors and do you want to hear um, in a query letter, whether someone has used a developmental editor? Um, I, it's certainly interesting information. Um, there's no reason why I would, I think, I think much like, you know, having a platform or having like publications or whatever can bolster and be helpful. It's, it's always interesting information to know, but again, I would never like not take a query seriously if that didn't exist. Um, but yeah, if someone's like, I work with an editor, great. I'd love to hear that. You know, it's like, you know, I can read one more sentence in the query letter. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> well, also, um, rejections, you know, interpreting mm. rejection letters, like if there's a note, is that, should this be an agent I go back to with another project? If it's a mm. form, is that agent interested in seeing my next project? I mean, how, mm -hmm. how should writers interpret rejection letters? So again, everyone is different. Um, I, if I am interested in seeing writing from a, from a writer in the future, if I reject a project and I'm interested in seeing more writing from them in the future, I will say it in the rejection. Um, because you can usually, I can just generally usually tell from the voice or the writing if it's, you know, if it's just a little underbaked or it's not quite the right project, but there's something in that writer um, I will say that. So, and obviously, I mean, people could always query me again with another project if I gave them a form rejection, but um, I probably, you know, it's probably, I, I will say it actively if it's something I'm actually interested in. Um, feedback wise, this sort of goes back to what I was saying before about, you know, not needing to take every note. Um, if an agent is giving you a specific note, it's probably worth paying attention to. Um, but also the other thing I would say is one of the first jobs you have as an assistant in-house or in an agency is slush or rejecting for your bosses. And a lot of times I, maybe I would, I, I just think that there's so, there's so much 
there's so much that a lot of times the rejections are not particularly um, thoughtful um, or you're cycling through a series of responses that you kind of pick up from something about the plot seems sloppy. So you're going to like mention that having read, you know, 10 pages or whatever. Um, So that's sort of why I say take rejections with a grain of salt. um, And it's always helpful if you have a series of specific feedback and maybe some of that feedback is pointing you in one direction. But if a note really doesn't feel right, don't take it. And also the other thing I like to say is when you're getting ready to send your book out, think about the things that are non-negotiable for you and what you're willing to move on. Um, Some writers are like, I'll do whatever you want to my (laughs) book in order for it to be out in the world. Great. Some writers are like, these things are very important to me to retain in my novel. And I think kind of figuring out what your boundaries are before you send it out is probably pretty good. Um, But, you know, I also, I, I like to work with writers who have like a relatively thick skin about their writing, because I kind of think that critique is the highest form of flattery or just, you know, if I'm taking the time out to, give you pretty specific critique. I probably care about it. Um, And some writers don't necessarily want to ever hear anything negative about their work. Um, And that is, I think, not, not necessarily a great way to, to be, to become a better writer. Right. Well, in terms of critique and critique group partners and such for the writer, um, you know, you're revising, you're running pages by your group. Um, how do you know when a piece is ready when you've done all that you can do and it really is time to query and see, see how it goes. How do you know when that point is? Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're maybe a perfectionist and you keep trying better. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so I would say like, yeah, there's two schools of people. There are people who, well, there's some people who just know when to send it out, which couldn't be me. Um, but some people who are just impatient and who are like, you know, I want to send this out. I'm going to like do this really quickly. And it's like, slow down, be careful. You only really get one shot at this with this particular project. Like don't rush it. But I think what you're more likely to see in in the scenario you're talking about is people who kind of can't let something go um, because they're a perfectionist and they're changing words here and there. And, you know, in your heart of hearts, when you're getting down to changing words here or there, that none of it makes a difference and you're just stalling. Um, a book is never really done. You know, like there are, there is not the perfect draft. There is seven to 10 to 15 to a million different versions of what your book could be. Um, even when, you know, I have had writers when I was in house who were calling me from like, downstairs in the lobby asking me to bring them like proof pages for a book that was already at the printer so they could make a couple like it's just people sometimes can't let go of their books um (laughs) and I think for a writer who's querying you're still so early on you know again you want that book to be as good as you can get it for getting the attention of an agent but your agent's gonna edit it your editor's gonna edit it the copy it like it's gonna it's certainly not done um and I think that that holding on thing is more of just like a psychological, you are preparing to send the book out into the very scary, often empty world <laughs> of querying. And um, I, I always am just like, yeah, just rip the bandaid off and do it. But I also, I completely empathize with how scary and like, 
just how how difficult that process is. Um, so I would say make sure you're in a good like mental space before you do it, <laughs> or as as close as you can get to a good mental space. That's yeah. asking a lot of writers, but you know. Mm. Well, you know we're we're drawing down to the end, but I did want to ask you about um, something, and I'm I'm forgetting what it was, but it had to do with oh I know uh, conversations like. Mm. Writers can find out so much about agents now, and agents can find out so much about writers. Um, mm-hmm. Most writers, what what is a what would be a really important question or conversation a writer should have with an agent? I mean, after mm-hmm. they find out everything they need to find out, the agents, you know, yeah. clients. You go to publishers marketplace. You can find out yeah. deals. I mean, all this. But what would be something that a writer won't find in those pages that would be important to talk about, do you think? Yeah, I'm glad you asked this. I think that talking beyond what the project is and what the plan is going to be is what is this relationship going to look like? Because it's a really intense and intimate relationship and you are asking, you are trusting this person with your work um, and what is like probably you think of as another child. Um, And it's important that that relationship works really well. Um, There's writers whose writing I really, really love and know that I probably wouldn't be a good fit for them as an agent because I can tell we wouldn't have the best working relationship for whatever reason. Um, You know, again, I mentioned, I mentioned before, like I, I don't, I, I could represent someone who needed a lot of handholding or not handholding, but like, coddling I guess um (laughs) but I think it would drain me and I think it would make my rest of my work really hard um and so you know if there's a writer who wants to work with someone who's a little bit more you know I don't know soft is a bad word to use but just like uh, whatever um and (laughs) this is not to say like I'm mean at all like I love complimenting my authors and I love but you know when you're editing something, when I'm editing something, I don't necessarily have time to give you a compliment on every page. I'm like looking for the stuff that needs to change. Um, but because I'm investing this time in this book, I really care about it. Um, and so I think authors talking to agents about how their working relationships are with their clients, you know, how they communicate, um, like what is, what is like, what time they should expect to hear, just like kind of basic things about because it's like any relationship in your life, you know, when you're, you wouldn't get married without like, you know, talking about how you communicate, obviously very (laughs) different. But um, I just think that that, that is something that is pretty hard to get from just reading an interview or reading a client list, or um, that's something or, you know, like an email back and forth, like having that phone conversation and just talking through and getting to know them. Um, That might be a little vague, but I just think that that's, you, you really want that, that working relationship to be, to be a successful one. And I also think that like, you know, young agents are, are really hungry and uh, are probably going to have more time sometimes for clients um, than really established agents. Um, some people are like, well, I don't really need that much time. So I just want to try to like get whoever is my, who is the top, you know, everyone has different desires for what they want out of representation, I would say. Mm. Yeah. Like relationships. I mean, it's a relationship, like you said, and, Definitely. and um, you know, 
Yeah, that's I, but, but sometimes, but yeah, I think writers will jump, you know, especially if they've been querying for a while and here's mm-hmm. someone who's interested. I don't care how it goes. I just want the, yeah. age, you know. Totally. Also, the other thing I will say is in terms of something that does move the needle, if a writer who's querying me reaches out and says, I have an offer of representation, I will almost immediately look at the project. Like it just, it's another thing that is, so obviously don't lie about it, but if you do have an offer of representation, (laughs) tell the other people you've queried, because again, it's just another, it's another filter, another kind of a look of, okay, someone was took this really seriously and I'm going to take it seriously. And, you know, hopefully I will be that person for someone at some point too, who like, you know, I am the first one to say, yes, I want to do this. And then they can take my offer to a bunch of different agents and say, who else wants to do this? And then I get to win the beauty contest, hopefully. Um, So it's a give and a take. And I think that um, it's always valuable to, to be communicative about that. Mm. And yeah, don't just sign with the first person just because they're the first person who expressed interest in you. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you can end up with the wrong person for a really long time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But most, most contracts, at least agency contracts before you have a deal, you can get out of, um, which is, but yeah, once you have a deal, it's a little bit harder. What do you read when you are not reading for work? Um, Oh, boy what do i read um well i can talk about what i've my favorite books of the year i guess um i read burnham wood by eleanor catton that's Mm -hmm. i think my favorite book i've read in years um i've loved her since the luminaries and she's a great example of someone who is kind of like a literary genius and also wrote this like great thriller Mm -hmm. i also think she does really good work of um critiquing like there's this there's this part in it where she's kind of critiquing the political left um it's a novel but she is like on the left politically and I think that that helps right having the empathy to be able to like critique a group you're part of as opposed to from like a area a place of condescension um and that is really fun and um like it just that book is so um it's so multifaceted um uh Carrie Howley who wrote Bottoms Up and the Devil Laughs this year which is a book about um the the deep state and her sort of like journey through investigating it and she is an example of a writer who has kind of used her personal experience and channeled it into writing about this like bizarre conspiracy filled world um but it's not just like writing a book about herself. Um, so there's memoir elements in it and she's present in it as the narrator, but um, it's very much a book about the, the, you know, world we live in. Um, so those were probably my two, my two tops of the year. Um, I've been trying to listen to more audiobooks lately because I've been driving a lot. Um, and I like to, when I'm, when I'm listening to an audiobook, I prefer it has a little more plot. Um, I'm listening to uh, Fire Weather by John Valiant, which is about mm. the 2018 Fort McMurray fires. Um, that's great. So yeah, just I I have not been reading the last couple weeks because I've been starting the year, but um, I'm hoping to, as always, get back into it. 
Mm. Well, I so appreciate you taking the time. This has been really interesting and I'm sure uh, our listeners will find find it just fascinating too because everybody always wants to hear from agents you know and totally find out what's really going on so thank you I know it's I know it's a a, a often obscure world so I'm happy to illuminate it in whatever way I can Mm, thank you yeah thank you so much for having me you're welcome that was literary agent Emma Dries thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen and a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who helped make the show possible. I also have a Substack page called Pen on Fire, where I talk about writing and include more from authors and agents who've been on the show. Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music and sound editing. By the way, if you like the music you hear on the show, you can find an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. Search out the artist Just My Type. Travis also has other music on there under his name. You can access our archive of shows 25 years worth at writersonwriting.com. And if you want to get in touch with us, email writersonwritingpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach Travis Barrett at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. Thank you.